say it enough. God says he hates divorce. Why? And that's some of the stuff we're going to talk about in family. Because, see, divorce scars a woman, a man, children, in-laws, ex-laws, whatever you want to call it. Everybody involved in the family winds up being also involved in a what? Yeah. And it hurts. And the one it hurts the most is children. Because what was secure for them is no longer secure. What was looking like that which was stable is no longer stable. That which they were trusting in, no longer can they trust in. And that's part of the problem even with blended families because what happens even with blended families when we take place, we don't know the real horrors of what children have gone through before we blend families. And now we add another dimension to that individual or those children's minds that they have to deal with. And oftentimes the children get overloaded. And the reason I'm talking about that because I've seen that happen. As I said, out of 14 children, 10 of us have been through divorces. 11 boys, 3 girls. 10 of us have gone through divorces. And I've seen what happens with blended families. How one group is neglected while another is somewhat treasured more. I've seen even in wills where more is left to this group of kids than it is to this group of kids. And that whole process God hates divorce because he knows the pain that it brings. He knows the damage that it brings. And sometimes it can bring lasting damage. And only he can heal it. But the problem that many begin to have who go through this thing called divorce is this. If God couldn't heal this, then what can God do? Seeing that demonstrated in my own daughter's life. A lot of questions about God. Seeing it in my own grandchildren. If this is a mighty God, and I remember one of them asking me one time, if God is so powerful, why couldn't they change my dad? It's an honest question that they're wrestling with. And the only thing I can say is God never interferes with your free will. God never interferes with your free will. But it's that your will has to bend to his will. But he will not make you do that. He hates it because he sees. But when we look at that Matthew 19... In that very first part, Jesus is defending marriage. You got to take in sight of all that has taken place there. That Jesus was teaching in the temple, and he had a great crowd. 
And when's the best time to show off as far as the Pharisees were concerned? Is when the crowd was there. When is it that we can make Jesus look foolish and stupid and backwards? And remember, Jesus himself really never in Scripture brings up the content of divorce or the subject of divorce. He never brings it up. It comes to him. He never brings up that subject. But it comes from the Pharisees. Especially when you look at Luke, Mark, Matthew, the Pharisees basically bring it up. And they bring it up for the purpose of entrapping him. Entrapping him in one area. Remember, especially in the book of John and and Matthew, that John the Baptist just lost his head from saying who was living in an adulterous affair. Herod. (laughs) Boy, it's a good time. If we can get Jesus saying things against Herod, and Herod gets mad at Jesus, Jesus just might lose his what? Lose his head. The other is, you have two schools of thoughts. And with those two schools of thoughts, they're hoping to get Jesus entangled up in that. And the other is to get Jesus to speak against what Moses has said. So when Jesus is dealing with this, and remember what Scripture says, Jesus knows the heart of man. And he knew these individuals' hearts. And he knew the entrapment in which they were trying to twine or get him involved in. They were trying to weave this thing that he wouldn't be able to get out of it. But he takes them right back to the beginning. To the beginning. And he says, in the beginning, it was only male and female. Guess what? Adam could not have committed adultery if he wanted to. But we never looked at it in that light. And God meant for Adam and Eve to be married all of their life. But Adam and Eve did not have all the distractions and the interferences that we have today. When you look at it from another position, if we go from Adam all the way through Moses, you can't tell me men were living perfect And there's nothing talked about adultery until you get to Exodus chapter 20. But from the time of Adam to the time that Moses writes the Ten Commandments, we really don't hear anything about adultery. Something was going on. But I think also what God is seeing in his own people, yeah, it is taking place. And it's time to say something about it. Therefore, I'm going to put it in the Ten Commandments, that men shall not commit what? Adultery. Because there was no law about it prior. There was nothing being said about it. And you have to understand one of the things about God. God 
trains his people in a period of time. I want you to take note of something, too. I think Jesus even speaks about it. In John 8, when they talk about the woman who was caught in adultery. They bought just a woman, but if she was caught in adultery, shouldn't the man been there too? But the weight of everything always fell on the woman. Now, I want you to see something from God's perspective. If I say there should not be any adultery, and you go out and commit adultery, what is my alternative? Put yourself in God's place. What is the alternative? One was you'd be stoned to death. You would be stoned to death. If that rule was alive today, we wouldn't have to worry about population, would we? No. But God suffers with man's failure and his sinfulness. That's why the scripture says he's long suffering with us. Because he's suffering long with us. As we are in this process of learning and growing, just like parents suffer long with their children while their children are what? Growing. How many of you here got perfect kids, never made a mistake, never told a lie, did everything right? Yeah. We kind of suffer with them, don't we, as we're raising them. See? And he says, in the beginning, there was no divorce. None. Then we go through that time with Adam all the way through Moses. No divorce that we really have. And then we read in Exodus 20:14 that God said, you shall not commit adultery. And God begins to deal with his adulterous people. Now understand this. He is forming a people for himself. And you're going to catch the word holy in Ezra when you read it. That area in there. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, he's dealing with Jewish women. But in Deuteronomy 21, 10, 14, he's dealing with the foreign women. And in Nehemiah 10.30, boy, they talk about giving their daughters in marriage to foreigners and even their sons. Okay. Then Ezra 9.1, he talked about their detestable practices and having mingled the holy race with that which is unholy. And in verse 14, he says, intermarriage with people who commit detestable practices. It's the way that they're living and what they're doing. Because, see, God had made a way for the Gentile or the foreigners to come into 
faith with Israel. It's not that he excluded them. He made a way for them to come in. They would still be Gentiles, but they would be afforded all the rights of the Israelites. Go with me to 24, Deuteronomy 24. We're going to wind up in Matthew 19, but I hope this helps lays some type of picture of what we're dealing with. In 21.4, he says, let me get there, get these eyes focused. Then her first husband, who has divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, 24, I'm sorry, I'm 24, 1 through 4, I read verse 4. He says, this man cannot go back and remarry his wife if she has been married to someone else. Now, I want you to catch that, because that's, that's important to catch when we talk about adultery in 19. Because, see, here, what a lot of us want to challenge sometimes is that in this law with Moses, it's either assuming or it is stating that remarriage is possible. Catch that now. But what he is saying here, and I like how one author puts it, once she is remarried, you can't interfere in her life, nor can she interfere back in whose life? Your life. That once remarriage takes place, the old spouse, old partner, cannot interfere into that next marriage. Now, go over to 21 and start with me in 10 through 14. He says, 11 through 14 in chapter 21, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Now, this is a foreigner. But while you're at war, um, and you're attracted to her, you may take her as your what? Yeah. Now, I don't care where you go. The men know this better than the women. Wherever America has had war, America has left babies. And what he is saying, when you find an attractive foreign woman of the captivity of those that you're warring with, you have a right to marry them. Now there's a process that the Jew also knew what needed to take place to bring her in to make her an Israelite. 
That never took place in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's why he talks about the detestable practices. Because they're still doing what? Practicing, worshiping their idols, their gods. And it says, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home, and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. Your clothing was a distinction between the tribe and your ethnicness in that day. The way you dressed had a lot to explain by what culture you belonged to. Same thing today with many Arabs. They can tell the colors and the way people dress to what tribal area they may belong to, to what section and so forth, and the different things that they're following, all by the way the men and the women dress. Many areas of Africa can still be very much recognized by a certain type hat and color, by certain colors that women wear and men wear, and the way in which they fold or tuck their gowns allows others to know from what region, what area they are from. And he says, wearing and put aside in verse 13, and put aside the clothes she has she was wearing when captive. After she has lived in your house and mourned for her father and mother for a full month. So now there's a total separation. Then you may go to her and be her husband. And she shall be your wife. Now, now, now catch some limitations here that God's going to put on also. Because I want you to remember when we get to Matthew 19, talking about adultery, and we'll reflect back to it. He says in 14, If you are not pleased with her, remember what the Jewish law is in 24? If for some reason you're not what? Pleased with her, write her a bill of what? Of divorce. Now the same thing is going to apply even to the foreign woman. If you're not pleased with her, you write a bill of divorce. And you let her go. Now now catch though the stipulations here. It's important to catch this part. It says... Get my eyes straightened up again. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she what? She wishes. You must not sell her. You cannot treat her like you would treat a slave. A slave is something that you owned. A slave is something that you possessed. And because you owned it and you possessed it, you also then had authority over it. But once you have written this bill of divorce and you have sent her away, you have no more authority. 
It ends. And he says, you can't sell her. And look at the next part. Or treat her as a slave. Since you have dishonored her. By sending her away, you dishonor her. You disrespect her. Now, when you go back into chapter 24, you find that the father steps into it. Because when you dishonor the daughter, what you really are doing is dishonoring the father who has raised this daughter to be the type of wife she ought to be. So therefore, if no proof comes forth that she was not a loose woman, that there was no sex before marriage or or adultery during the marriage, You had to take that wife and you could never threaten divorce again. Because you could not prove that she was not a worthy wife. And whenever you threaten a young woman, you threaten the father. You threaten the name. And see, today in our culture, name doesn't mean very much. Remember up in Cleveland a few years ago when this Muslim boy killed his sister and they went into court and he claimed he had to honor his father's name because of what his sister was doing and because he was not yet a United States citizen, we had to let him go and we had to extradite him back to his country because what he was doing, even the ambassador got involved in it, He was honoring the law of his country and of his family. Though he killed an American that his sister was messing with, and it was a disgrace to the name of the family, and he was honoring the family, and he was honoring the whole nation from which he was from, we had to send him back to his nation. Because we may say, well, he broke an American law. But he did not break the law from which he was from. And he was still a citizen from which he had come from, not an American citizen. And he says, you dishonored her. In Nehemiah 10.30, go there with me. Nehemiah. The Lord says, Nehemiah is speaking. He says, We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters. For our sons. Nehemiah recognized many priests, many leaders, they've done this. And he brings them all together and they're making this promise. They will no longer do this. Follow with me just a little further. Because you need to understand that, boy. God is against divorce. 
is that thing that's unpleasant. But the people started it off wrongly. They started it wrongly. Because of the detestable practices that were taking place in these people's lives. That he brings them to this point. Go to Ezra 9 now with me. And he says, in verse 1, After these things have been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable what? Detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, and he means all the ones that are around them. Now, get down into verse 2 a little bit with me. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons have mingled, look what he's going to say now, they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this un- what? unfaithfulness. Look at verse 14 again here with me in Ezra 9. Get over into verse 14. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? And the thing with that is, no, we shouldn't do that. But look what he keeps saying. Detestable practices. Detestable practices. Now, the whole part is that Ezra then asked the people to separate from them. Because what happens when you mingle a believer and an unbeliever? You got outright confusion with children. For you got one saying, well, you don't have to go to church. You don't have to believe this. You don't have to do that. Then you got another one saying, there's only one God, and we need to worship him, and we need to do this. And do Which one is the child to believe? Whose practice of lifestyle is the child supposed to follow? So what we do, we bring confusion into the house itself. That's why Paul in 7 is very quickly say, if the unbeliever decides to leave, let them what? Let them leave. But if they also decide to stay, let them stay. But if they want to leave, let them leave. But in 2 Corinthians 6.14, we are told, what does light have to do with darkness? And what we don't do is teach that enough in our church that our young people, when they're dating, can catch the vision of understanding you date someone who is a Christian. Now, understand this. If two unbelievers get together and then find the Lord, that's okay. But a Christian should never marry another person knowing that they're an unbeliever thinking they're going to change them. Like the person who picked up the snake and put them in their pocket 
And then the snake bit them, and they asked them, why did you bite me? I picked you up, put you in my pocket, it was nice and warm. What you take home with you, it may be nice and warm for a moment, but it's eventually going to bite you. In the beginning, he says, God made no provisions for divorce. So in that 19.4, let's get over to it. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. And guess what? Adam and Eve didn't have one to leave. Adam didn't have to worry about a father-in-law and mother-in-law. Eve didn't have to worry about a father-in-law or a mother-in-law. One day my mother came over to my house and she's going to rearrange Elaine's kitchen a little bit. And I told mom, mom, this is Elaine's kitchen. (laughs) It's not yours. And then one day, me and Elaine's mom had to have some words. And I told her, mom, your daughter is always free to come home if she so desired to do so. But what's over on Wooster Avenue, I will run, and you run what's on Winton Avenue. And we had to get it clear of those things. Adam didn't have them situations. Blessed is Adam. And he said, in the beginning, it was not so. But as life continues on, man's sinfulness and his problems become more and more and more. And all the schools of thoughts at that point in time agreed that divorce was lawful. Why? Because Moses had given it. The only question that really came up for them was this. What were the grounds for the divorce? For one school only held divorce only on the basis of adultery. You couldn't divorce your wife because she didn't make your breakfast right. She didn't, you couldn't divorce your wife because she didn't make the coffee just right. Or, or, or as Ozzy said to Elaine, when you serve Gus, you take it over and you bow to him. You just don't just throw it across the table. Elaine told him, you better shut up. I'm going back to Africa. (laughs) But understand, Ozzy never fed himself until he was 16 years old. Because of his dad's position as tribal leader, he always had women to feed him. And he never fed himself until he was 16 years old. My brother married, well, wasn't married, but living with a Philistine, with a Filipino. And we went out to dinner with him, and 
he put his hands in his lap. And when he opened his mouth, she would put the food in. And I'm watching this for about maybe five, ten minutes. And I said, hell, if mama was alive, she'd slap you all upside your head. But that's how she was trained to treat her husband in her tribal area in the Philippines that she fed him. So Harold could hold his conversation. He'd be talking. He never had to pick up his fork or his spoon. When he opened his mouth, no words came out. She put the food in. And I'm saying, boy, I'm over there hustling and busy. I said, where are you laying at? <laughs> I've been there starved to death. And <laughs> but... And, and the only question was, what were the grounds for what this divorce was going to take place? And, and Jesus said, haven't you read from the beginning there was no divorce? Why? God never made any provision for divorce. He didn't put any provisions in there. But yet seeing the sinfulness of man and the hardness of their heart, he allows it. And Jesus holds us to the original plan. No divorce. No divorce. No divorce. He would not lower the desire plan of marriage. Now understand this. Because we may not be able to live up to God's standard, God doesn't lower the bar for us. The standard remains the same. But thank God when we don't meet his standard, there's this thing called forgiveness. There's that thing called mercy. There's that thing that God says, I'm going to come alongside of you and I'm going to train you until you can meet my standard. That's the God who made the promise that he will work with us until we see Christ face to face. And he won't give up on us. And he keeps training us and teaching us how we can meet his standard. Because he's not going to lower his standard for us. He's not going to grade us on a curve. Either we meet it or we don't. But if we don't meet it, boy, he comes right alongside and says, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. He would not lower the desire plan of marriage for life. What divorce really reveals that oftentimes we don't want to face is simply this. It shows that God's understanding that in a fallen world, the ideal cannot always be realized. It cannot always be realized. God's best is not always acceptable to fallen man. But that doesn't mean God doesn't still hold his best for us. But sometimes he has to wait for us to desire it. And we want his best in our life. God's ideal is not always achievable either. In many years of my life, there are things in my life that I'm still having to strive for in order to be pleasing, really, in God's sight. 
because Gus Fromm has a lot of wrinkles and, and scars and, 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 and troubles in his mind and, and troubles with his eyes and, and, and just troubles with his thoughts that God's still got to deal with. And God's ideal is not always achievable for us at a moment of time or at a given time. But that doesn't mean God has given up on me because he's still working on me that I achieve those things. It's just like being in school. Just because you fail one day doesn't mean that you don't have another opportunity to pass it. It doesn't mean you can't go back at it. You have to desire to go back at it. And Jesus, what he does, he holds that original plan, no divorce. The ideal doesn't change. And this is what we have to be willing to accept about God. That is so hard. God's commandments and his ideals doesn't change to accommodate our failures. And oftentimes what we're looking for is God to change his word to accommodate our failures and what he expects of us. That expectation never changes. He's expecting me to live on this plane, on a higher plane, not on this plane. And therefore, he never changes his ideals or his commands to accommodate our weaknesses or our failures. Remember with Pilate? There's two examples. One, Pilate says, what is truth? Now, understand, John says that Jesus Christ came with what? Grace and truth. You mean to tell me there wasn't no truth around? Truth was there, but people were not willing to what? Recognize truth. They wasn't willing to deal with truth. And Pilate is saying something that somewhat mirrored the whole society, the whole world at the time, struggling with what is truth because you got all kind of philosophy going through. And it has distorted truth. And guess what? We're living in such a time and day right now that we cannot distinguish what truth is. Truth is comfortable to us Oh, yeah, when it fits my life, when it fits in my little way, in my little corner of the world. But truth don't always fit there. Truth sometimes calls for a change. Sometimes truth calls for you to make a decision about something that is very difficult for you that you may not want to give up. And there's that truth. And... Pilate says, what's truth? It's whatever man wants to believe. It's whatever man wants to do. That's what truth is. The reality is, God had spoken truth from the very beginning. But man did not want to hear truth or accept God's truth. And I like the way the Holy Spirit puts it in order in John that Jesus Christ came in grace and truth. He came in favor of us, giving us favor. And then his truth 
Him is true. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8 so you can see it a little bit clearer. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. And it says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this is Israel. Give us a king to lead us. This this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they are rejecting, but they have rejected me as their what? As their king. They wanted a king. And they were willing to have a king, even though it was going to cost them something. More than what they would want to give. But they wanted a king. They didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted a man to rule over them. They wanted a king. Now understand this simple principle here. Man desires man to rule over man because man is somebody you can negotiate with. Man is somebody you can compromise with. God, there's no negotiation. There's no compromising. It is what I have said. (laughs) No changing the rules for whoever you might be. No special treatment for any group of people or peculiar people. We're all under the same rule, same guidance. And they said, give us a king. We want a king. And the Lord knew they were rejecting him. Not Sam. They were rejecting him. He says, As they have done from the days and brought them up out of Egypt until the day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel told all the words of what the kings would do. And you go down there, boy, you're, you, hey, they're, they're going to take your sons and build an army. Hey, guess what? They're going to take your daughters and they're going to work in the bakery and they're going to be in the king's house to please him and so forth. He's going to take your land, your vineyard. He's going to tax you. He's going to do that and this. He gives them all what they're going to do. But listen to the people in 19 now. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. Here's all the things that the king's going to do to you. They said, hey, we don't care. We want a king. And they go on, he says, no, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. Be like who? And guess what the church wants to be like? We want to be like the world. If there was a truth sermon that I could inject into you real quick, we'll see how many of y'all like to party. We would see how many of you like to do a little... (laughs) Some things would come out. Isn't it strange that when you get a little high, what truth comes out? They said one thing about a drunk, he always told you to what? (laughs) 
the whole process is they wanted a king. They didn't want God. They wanted a king. And here is that area that I'm saying. God's desire was to rule over his people. And in a sense, he didn't get his desire. It didn't go his way. Now, again, I would ask you to put yourself in God's shoes. Do I destroy them all? And pick myself a new group of people to begin to work with? Or do I allow them to learn from their decision? And what God does, he allows them to learn from the decision that they make. Because, see, in captivity, they weren't yelling for the king. They were yelling for the Lord. When things, when famine came, they weren't yelling for the king. They were yelling for the Lord. Aren't we the same way? As long as things are going well, Lord, mind your business, I'll, my, I'll take care of my business. We'll rule over ourselves. But let a crisis hit. Oh, God! Now, not like this from the beginning. And here comes a little area again that's very tough for us to swallow, especially in our evangelical world here. I praise God for the time in my life and he allowed us to grow even deeper in him as we grow older and learn a little more. And God changes us. And I praise God for that. Likewise, God never commanded remarriage. You won't find it in scripture per se. You'll find it where Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24. You'd find it possibly in Deuteronomy 21. But you never find a command where God says this. Now understand this, because it's going to be part of that part of adultery that Jesus talks about. If you're already committing adultery in marriage and your plan is to divorce somebody in order that you may marry somebody else, that is adultery. And you're living in an adultery state because you've already planned that. But divorce without, I think, and, and here again, from what I'm trying to understand and grapple with, if your intent is not to go live with somebody else, that's not saying four or five years, six years down the line, you don't remarry. But you get remarried the next month, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Um, and that adultery was taking place in the mind, in the heart, way before the bill of divorce was ever given. And therefore, when you carry out your plan that you're going to leave this man or this woman in order to marry this man or this woman, that's a state of adultery. God never commanded remarriage or divorce couples. 
This doesn't mean that he never permitted it. Doesn't mean that he didn't permit it. He allows us because he knows our fallen heart, our fallen state. But guess what? Took me a long time to come to this, and sometimes it's even hard for other uh, pastors that, that I talk with them sometimes to follow this. If you're in your third, fourth marriage, only thing you said is that you haven't done it God's way. And if you don't do it God's way, if two people don't do it God's way, guess what the end result's going to be? Until you make it up in your mind to do it God's way, and it takes two people to make up their mind, this is going to be done God's way, that the marriage will really last. Now, there's always those exceptions. Mr. Myers, who lived next door to us on Rooster Avenue, he showed me up as being a husband. I mean, his wife was a nurse at Akron U. And he worked for Goodyear. And he would get home before his wife. But he knew what time she was coming in. And he would get out there, unlock the gate, have the gate open for her. He would meet her at the door with her little drink and so forth. He would open the garage door, because then they didn't have the remote so much. He had the garage door up where she wouldn't have to get out the car in the rain, in the snow, or whatever. That garage door would be up where she could just pull right on through the gate, right on into the garage. And if it was raining, he'd be there to meet her with an umbrella. That man put me to shame. I'm glad I was a young, foolish young man back then. He was an older, wise man. So when I built a new home, I made sure the garage was attached to the house. (laughs) And God's ideal of marriage never changed for us. No more than it ever changes for us in our personal life and our failures. God still expects me to be a godly woman or a godly man. I may not be that today. That does not change what God's expectations of me are. Boy, it's still the same. And we get confused, and I think this is part of our problem. We get confused on what God commands and what he allows. What God commands and what he allows. He allows because the only other recourse really is is to destroy everybody who breaks my what? Who breaks my commands. It's to just literally, the moment you cross that line, you zap. Or I have to give you forgiveness, mercy, and continue to work with you. Now, adultery, go back to 19. Matthew 19 as he talks about to leave a spouse for another person is adultery in sight of God. But I want you to look at two things with me. Because in 19, he uses, in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and that unfaithfulness, remember with Joseph, 
Joseph was going to put Mary away, what, silently, because he assumed maybe that she had had an affair with another man before they had had a chance to really get married. And that is the unfaithfulness that's being talked about here, ladies and gentlemen. And it could be adultery also after. But mainly what was taking place beforehand. And he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. If you divorce your wife with the plan of marrying this nice 32 or 24-year-old, or, 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 or okay? See, if we saw Jasper walking down the street with a 28-year-old, boy, in one mouth we would be saying, come on, man, go on, man, you got it going on. In the other mouth we would be saying, that foolish old man. It comes out both ways, you know. And he says, now, if you do that, you live in that state of adultery. Now, go over into Mark 10. It's amazing that Mark is the only one who brings this up. Uh, Matthew and Luke don't really talk about it. But and Mark really brings this out. I, I think Mark brings it out because Mark is writing to the Romans. And if we understand there was a different law among the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews. With the Jews, you could write a bill of divorce. But the only one who could do that was the man. Under the Roman law, women could also write a bill of divorce or divorce. And plus, women showed off how many husbands they had basically by how many rings they wore. And it was a thing of saying how beautiful I am, how, how, how I am desired by man. And it was showed off. The Greeks also had it that the women could divorce. The only group that couldn't divorce was a Jewish woman. Only the man could do that. So I think in Mark, if you became a Christian, and we know that there were those women who were Gentile women who also followed Jesus or believed in Jesus. So he says in that verse 11, He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now catch verse 12, because this is what, again, is strange again. And if she divorces her husband, now I think what Mark is doing there is, is basically saying, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to follow Jesus Christ, even as a woman, you can't do this. Jews already had it, that they couldn't do it, the women. But for those Gentiles, they had the freedom to do it. But he says, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, you cannot do this. And therefore, he says in verse 12, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. If either one of you plan that, you live in a state of adultery. 
you got your boyfriend already in mind. You, you, you already dating him on the side. You're you already doing some things you know you shouldn't be doing. Well, you're living in an adulterous affair even while you're married. And then if you carry that on out, even if, as the divorce comes, you're living in adultery. Now, let me get ready to close here. Because he says, never in the beginning. In Deuteronomy 24.2, the wife of another man, she cannot interfere, as we pointed out. And then in 21.14, when that divorce takes place, that man or that woman has no more authority over that other person. As long as you are married, a husband and a wife has authority over each other. But the moment that divorce takes place, there is no more authority. That's why scripture says we submit one to another. That's authority to each other. When you send someone away, you lose the right to have authority over them. Now, I want to illustrate this by adoption. When Gus and Tia were adopting the three kids that they were adopting, one of the problems that they were having was finding the father. The father, they found out, was in prison. It's hard for the government to find you when you're in prison. And he had to sign off his rights as the biological father in order that Gus and Tia might be the authority figure in his biological children's life. He had to give away his rights. The mother took him to court because she repealed or argued against what the referee said because of her drug problems and everything else, and her leaving the kids locked out of the house in cold weather, in rain, and, and sometimes the kids had to sleep on the porch, and I'm talking about a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And she was not willing to give up her rights. Well, so happened, she got picked up by the law again, so they bargained with her. You sign off your rights or you go to prison. <laughs> Guess what she did? <laughs> she signed off her rights with no court file. By signing off the rights to her children, she was saying as a mother and as a father, I have no more authority over the children. And the new adopted parents have all rights. When you send your wife away and you go through a divorce, what you're saying to the court and everybody else, you have no more rights over that person. You can't tell that wife, be home by 11 o'clock. You can't tell that wife, well, give me a call every now and then and let me know where you're at. You can't tell that wife, 
Well, we're on a budget. You only got $150 to spend. You can't tell that wife this or that. For you have released all of your authority over that person, that wife, or that husband. It has taken place. And we need to understand that. God doesn't command divorce. But he does allow it. For the weaker vessel. It's one evil helping to hold back a worse evil that could take place with children being abused, wife being abused. God suffers a lesser evil for a greater evil that might take place. So we close out about divorce. But do we have a little understanding about it now? I hope we do from the last three sermons. But remember that process. God hates divorce because he knows the pain and the hurt that takes place. God hates it. It destroys the mind. It destroys the heart. It destroys people's faith in him and trusting him. It's a destroyer of the word. But it's also a safety net for those who would be abused and killed and misused. And as we start next week into fall, we want to talk about how do we grow healthy families? How do we help young men become godly young men? How do we help young girls become godly young girls? And when do we know when to cut loose because see, one thing about parents, I'll never forget this guy as he explained it. Raising children is like riding a horse. When you first get on a horse, you want to pull the reins tight. Because the horse knows he just can't take off what? Galloping. If you let a child just take off running on you, they have disrespect for you. They're doing whatever they want to do when they want to do it. But if you hold the reins tight and then let them out, as you train them, as you give them the ability, you let the reins out and watch them grow a little. And we're going to talk about that a little next week. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your word. And your word.